and Stanford throws a fade route to the right side of the end zone. Really, really good coverage by Wright. Both players are battling the whole time. It's going back and forth. Even Gilmore and the other commentator make comments about how they've been allowing the teams to play physically all game long. And ball falls incomplete, no call made, just a good play. Um, On fourth and goal, Stanford basically runs the exact same play. The exact same hand fighting goes on there in the corner. The only thing that was different is after that second down play, you can hear on the broadcast a Stanford coach screaming at the officials to call holding. All right, so I just wanted to jump in here and let you guys know that, yes, this podcast is about a week late, and the audio is not very good, but it is full of great duck tent. And one of the reasons why this podcast is about a week late is uh, just just some mental health struggles. So just keep that in mind out there, everybody. Take care of your mentals and take care of your chickens. Without a strong rhyme and step to Think of how many weeks shows you slept through Time's up, I'm sorry I kept you Thinking of this, you keep repeating your mess The rhyme from the microphone solo with So you sit by the radio and on the dial soon As you hear it, pump up the volume And welcome to the Flock Pod We are at hashtag 084 It's going to be our second try at 84 Since we had some technical difficulties last week But welcome everybody back here into the beautiful condo The Avatarier producers are lounging around the heater today so hopefully they'll stay a little bit quieter than the last time we had zach on and it was like a doggy fight club over here as shane mentioned Uh, you can find us at the flock pod on all of your major social media platforms except for facebook and instagram because they were down this whole day so be careful with that kids the great facebook apocalypse of 2021 you can also find us at the flock pod on all of your major social media platforms. And if you'd be so kind, please go into that podcast app and just give us the five star ratings. Or if you're in an AT&T store or Verizon store, just do what I did and go to all the phones and subscribe them to the flock pod. You know, that helps us too. A more so genius moves I've ever heard in my life. Hey, I have my moments, man. A blind squirrel catches a nut every once in a while. Um, we are really blessed today to have once again my good friend and Ducks Wire from USA Today, Zach Neal, on the podcast today. You can find him at Zachary C. Neal on the Twitterverse and catch all of his writing at DucksWire.USAToday.com. Zach, how you doing, man? Uh, I'd like to say I was doing better, but I think we all kind of feel the same way right now. But regardless, I'm very happy to be back on talking with you guys today awesome yeah that was that was a rough one i was i was commending you on your drive home um i am of course at coach justin d you can find me all over the place on all of your social media platforms shane tell them where you are you can find me at bartender shane six on the twitter and at walk a flock of shane six on the gram All right, so we are not going to dilly-dally at all today, ladies and gentlemen. We are just going to jump right into the meat of this game. Um, Obviously, just a brutal loss here for the Oregon Ducks, falling to the Stanford Cardinal down there in Palo Alto. Um, One of the more... Very similar to like the 2001 game to me, except obviously this was on the road. That game happened in Autzen Stadium. So just a, a very different feel. Uh, final score, 31-24, to 24, Stanford Cardinal in overtime. Uh, I first just want to throw it to you guys just to kind of get your general feelings on the game, and then we'll kind of jump into some some fourth quarter breakdown and some more details in that first. But Shane, let me throw it to you first and just kind of tell me tell me how you're feeling, man. Uh, so again, I, you know, as always, I watch this game at work. So, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by TVs, but I wasn't 100% locked in. And 
I kind of I had like a similar feeling uh, feeling as the Arizona game where it was like, you know, shit's not really going 100 percent. Right. But I was like, I had faith they were going to get it together late in the game. They, you know, really lock in and turn it around. Uh, got a little bit busy at work there in the second half. So I didn't really get as many of the details as you guys probably have. And I haven't even made it to a, a second watch either. Um, but yeah, it was pretty gross. And I mean, it's, I, you know, I hate to, I'm, I'm not one to, to blame stuff on referees wearing the stripes myself, but there, it was inter- interesting stuff there at the end of the game. I mean, the starting with just like the targeting call on cave on Thibodeau, where it was like, I don't know what else he really could have done different in that situation. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll get into that later on too, but I'd even go back to the first play of the game, the targeting call on Bridges to start off. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's, well, that's one of the questions I have for you guys is what can we do with this targeting rule? But let's tease that. Let's save that for a little bit later on in the podcast. Uh, Zach, you were down there in Palo Alto, um, feet on the Nikes on the ground. Uh, tell me how you're feeling, man. You know what? Uh, I mean, I can't help but say that this is a complete surprise. I know that... We are a great team. We're really, really, I mean, we were a top three team, but we had some flaws, and I think every Duck fan knew that this team really, I mean, we had a tendency to play down to our opponents, and uh, we kind of sat out some halves throughout the year. So I think if we went in, if you told your your past self from the future that we were going to lose this game in overtime after falling down 17-7 to in the first half, it's that's not a huge shock to me. I mean, we knew that Stanford was probably going to give us a test, and they, they ended up doing it. I mean, the way that it happened probably isn't what we all saw. We didn't really, if you had told us that we were up with up seven with two minutes left and a chance to run off the clock, yeah, we were supposed to win. Our, our win percentage was 99.9% at that time, and we ended up throwing it away with some help from the refs, but also some, some pretty bad defense from us. So uh, we can get into refs at some point. But, yeah, in the end, it's... It's a tough one to swallow, but I don't think it's a huge shock because this this team does really have some bugaboos about them, and they ended up coming coming back to bite them at the end. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. This team was kind of playing on on the edge there, on that razor's edge um, this whole season. And this is a game, actually, when Shane and I did our preseason prediction podcast, I was worried about this one from the get-go. You know, a, a Stanford team that's supposedly on a down year with a with a stud quarterback and a pretty decent defense um, is always a scary proposition. I just didn't foresee it playing out this way. Uh, I thought the Ducks were obviously going to bring it home. I predicted 31-28, but it was very... It just felt odd. And that's one of the things that I'm, I'm glad that you're here with us today, Zach, because I want to get an idea for what it felt like in the stadium. It just kind of like watching it here on my couch. It just felt like the whole afternoon was just kind of off. You know, the referees never really seemed to have a control of the game from the, the from the very get go. Obviously, that that targeting call on bridges, but just it's weird to say this, but the ref didn't seem confident anytime he like got on the mic or was trying to make a call. It just it felt like there was a lot of. Um, unease you know about what was going on down there so what was what was the feeling like in the stadium it's hard to say i mean it it was a very weird game for one like there was no stanford crowd there like i'd say mm-hmm. that i mean so there's there's fifty thousand. that that stadium the stadium holds fifty thousand people i'd say that there was no more than twenty five thousand at any point during the day and at least half of those were oregon fans so one it was just yeah. very a very weird vibe to have Go Ducks chanters chant chants louder than anything else in the stadium. But yeah, uh, other than that, the game honestly felt kind of like any other Duck game aside from the Ohio State game this year in the sense that we fell behind early. We didn't really look that good. 
But there was always the sense that, all right, second half comes around, we're going to get back into it, we're going to make our adjustments and be fine. And we were. We were. We scored, we took the lead in the, in the, sec- in the second half, and up until that final you know, three minutes of the game, it seemed like what Oregon has done any other time this year. So um, it, was, it was fine until that last drive, and then it really wasn't fine. Yeah, you, you hit it right there on the head. I was actually going to ask you what the, the fan proportions there were in the stadium because it really did feel um, duck-dominated, even getting the, the Cardinal to jump a couple times on false starts, things of that nature. I even sent Shane a text at the beginning of the game saying, I'm a lot less worried about this game seeing Stanford's half-empty stadium. It's like, oh, okay. Like, they're not even going to bring an environment for the number three team in the country. We should walk all over these preppy kids. But... That definitely was not the case. Um, so, Shane, what did you get a chance to really kind of lock in on that fourth quarter, third quarter action, or you were you were just working the whole time like crazy? Oh no, not even a not even a little bit. Uh, yeah, I was. That was probably the busiest point of my day. So, I mean, I was catching kind of the cliff notes of what was happening, and and it, to what you guys were saying about the crowd, it was it was tripping me out because like, you could hear the crowd reactions, and they kept being like, you know, more. Uh, conclusive to like what was happening with Oregon and Stanford. And like, so I'd hear the crowd roar and assume something happened with Stanford and it was like, you know, a sack or whatever. I, I kind of wonder if the, the energy in the stadium had something to do with, especially the start of that game. It just felt really disjointed and kind of almost scrimmagey. It, like for, as far as like, I don't know, probably different for us over watching over the, uh, the TV broadcast. Nothing was really clicking. Like it wasn't just a, there wasn't, I don't know. There wasn't anything to really hang their hat on offensively to move forward later in the game. It wasn't like running up the gut was doing really well. It wasn't, you know, CJ. It wasn't these wheel routes. Anthony Brown missing on some deep throws. And, I mean, that was something, I mean, we might as well get into it now. Like, is the Anthony Brown situation holding this team back at this point? I love it, but I want to get there later. I want to get there later. I want to tease that for a little bit down later in the podcast because I do want to call out a couple of things of why it felt so odd. I mean, obviously, we want to send you know our love and good vibes and healing energy to Coach Moorhead. Um, we certainly hope that he's getting healthy down there. It sounded like he had surgery and is in a, in a hospital in Palo Alto still, so um, hopefully he's uh, recouping and whatnot. But the thing, the other thing that the Ducks were missing was Alex Forsyth, the starting center, not being in that game. I do wonder how much those two things impacted Anthony Brown's comfort level. Because this is the first time I've seen him play that he genuinely looked uncomfortable. And obviously they talk about with offensive coordinators, it's not just calling the right play in the moment but it's sequencing, it's building up to those moments. It's getting the defense to, to look at different things and then be able to, to read and react off of the way the defense is playing you. So I'm not even, Zach, do you know who was even calling the plays for the Ducks in that so game? So I think that the play callers were wide receivers coach, Brian McClendon and running backs coach, uh, Jim Mastro. But I think the biggest point, even more than the play calling aspect of, of Moorhead not being there is the fact that Moorhead, he's the quarterback's coach too. And so when you have A.B. who is having a tough game by his own admission, like he did not play well, and when you have him struggling in the first half and when you don't have his safety blanket of a coach right there to kind of talk him down and talk him through things, make adjustments, that's huge. I mean, so I think even more than than the play-calling aspect of things, it's just kind of a big deal not to have Moorhead as your position coach there to try and help you through some of the problems. 
I mean, that's kind of your binky. So yeah, let, let's just get into it, Shane. I like I like the tease there. Uh, I mean, after my rewatch, after after seeing Anthony Brown's decision making in a couple key spots, I even got into it a couple guy uh, a couple times on Twitter with people saying that Anthony Brown was being selfish. I didn't necessarily see selfish. I saw more. I need to put things on my shoulders, and I think there's a difference. I do think there's a difference. Zach, I see you scrimming over there. Shane, I see you scrimming over there. So I'm just going to jump in. Whoever Shane, wants to I'll jump in. you go for it. All right. I, the, <laughs> the only time I really ever see him being selfish is on those option plays, which it really just doesn't seem like, like he's comfortable pitching the ball. I mean, there was the one over to the right side when uh, I think it was the third or fourth down uh, early in the game when it looked like CJ would have at least had an easier path to the end zone rather fourth than down. AB going yeah. straight up. Mm-hmm. On the goal yeah, line. rather than going straight up the gut with it, which, I mean, when, when he did tuck it i thought he had it i mean honestly at first it seemed like he was going to be able to have enough momentum to get over there but it's just it's like the second or third week in a row and he just seems really reluctant to pitch it on those option plays which is unfortunate but i don't really see the way he was playing the game overall selfish but i mean that's just a weird i mean twitter is not friendly to anthony brown this season well and it's no that's the truth. Yeah, go ahead, Zach. It's not. I don't want to call him selfish because I mean, I don't. I don't know the guy. His, his teammates seem to love him. He's a, a huge guy in the locker room. But it's just the decision making aspect that really that really troubles me. Like you said, that fourth and one on the goal line right before halftime. The fact that we didn't come away from that drive with points is just a travesty. And you look at the replay. He had a, a read option. He could have easily pitched it to CJ out on the right side, who would have walked in for a touchdown. And I mean, I mean, there was a defender coming up who might have met him, but I like CJ's momentum carrying forward over the goal line with a defender, a defensive back trying to get him. But and, and we had that offensive lineman exactly, in exactly, front of him yeah, too, he, which I didn't see the first time I watched. Nine it. times out of ten, CJ's getting in for six there, and instead yeah. Anthony keeps it and goes up the middle and gets stopped. All right, bad decision. We talked to him after the game, what he would have done differently, what his read was. He said, "Yeah, bad decision. Just as simple as that. I need to pitch it." Uh, later in the second half, in the second half, on his second touchdown run of the game, it worked out. He had another read option where he probably should have handed it off to Travis Die, but then he kept it and rolled around to the left side. I don't know if it was Die. I forget who it was. But I think it was red. It was it red coming been, on the yes, it probably was red. Yeah. But mm-hmm. he, he kept the ball and ran around the left side and had a touchdown. But it really, he was kind of running alongside red the whole time, where it's like any most quarterbacks would give that to their player and run it in. So I don't want to harp on him too much for that decision because he did score. But throughout the game, there was just, I mean, he had his first pick of the year, his first turnover of the year, and he probably should have had one more, maybe two more mm-hmm. interceptions on the game too. Like it it just really wasn't a banner day for him, and unfortunately, it it could be a, a tough decision for the coaches coming forward. Well, do you guys think that maybe potentially going forward, you don't see it as much these days, but could we see like a Jason Fife, Kellen Clemens situation? I don't think that's what Cristobal wants to do. I think if he does something like that, it was bringing in AB and that goal. He likes guys to have specific mm-hmm. goals. And that's why we had AB as kind of like that goal line, you know, quarterback last year. Um, a player that I think we actually miss a lot, Cyrus Habibilikio, also being kind of that goal line pounder back and things of that nature. So the the depth of the Ducks being 
um, hurt the way it has. And Cristobal wanting to get more guys into more pure roles, I think has just kind of shifted things around a little bit. But yeah, Casey Holdall was the guy on Twitter that um, first brought up this whole Anthony Brown being selfish thing. And I did try to watch a lot of those plays specifically. And it's just without being in the huddle, without being on the sideline, without you know hearing what his coaches are telling him and things of that nature, it's really difficult to say. But there's definitely evidence to support that if you wanted to spin it that way. I'm just never going to call a 22-year-old kid selfish. That's just, I mean, these are, these are, I mean, I'm almost 40. Like, I'm not just, I'm not going to call these kids selfish. That's just the way it is. You know, they're kids. I remember how dumb I was at 22. So let's not jump into that too much. But the decision-making, the bad decision-making, and I think it's, he just feels like he has to do it all and he doesn't have to. It seems like that's really what I come back to. It seems like there was a couple points when like, there was one throw in particular, I think it was the second quarter when he had Spencer Webb. I think it was a third down. He had Spencer Webb and he kind of sailed it on him a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I felt like there was like that play and a couple others in the third quarter where if he completes those throws, the momentum starts to kick in. And then that's when he was really would, you know, start to get rolling. And you saw it with him running the ball a couple times that he he was starting to kind of get into that comfort zone. And then every incomplete pass, it was like, you know, taking two steps backwards from that one step forward. So, I mean, it seemed like it was on the cusp of him, like getting it together and actually having a day. I mean, it wasn't, some of the throws I thought it was they were just a tad bit off, and I mean sometimes you see that on road games, especially. I mean usually with younger quarterbacks in the Navy, but it wasn't his day, I guess. Like I said, this was the first time me watching him. He looked uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of that goes back to you know Moorhead has kind of been his guy, been his court, been his coach, like you know Zach brought up earlier, and so not having him to go over there and kind of break things down or talk to him who who knows how how much of an effect that was really having on him but i i'm gonna say it i mean i've been anthony brown's biggest supporter and defender we're in a bye week we play cal on a friday it's ty thompson time it's ty thompson time I, I, I am I'm 100% on the bandwagon now. Ty Thompson is my adducted son, so I, I think it's time. Because if, you, if you're if There's you're some going people on make, Twitter who actually think that you guys are related. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. I'm not big enough on Twitter to make that a big deal, but yeah, I'm okay with it. But I, if you're going to make the change, this is the week to make the change because you have plenty of time to build it up. So I see Zach kind of agreeing with me here. I see Shane kind of, you know, shaking his head saying no. So so Shane, you tell me why the Ducks need to give Anthony Brown more time. I think that the biggest issue that this team has as a whole, I mean, obviously the Anthony Brown situation has been the most like hot topic kind of, you know, thing to talk about. And it always is with a quarterback. But I think this team's biggest issue overall is maturity. I thought, I, I mean, I think that Bridges hit early in the game. That was absolutely targeting, in my opinion. I don't know what the hell he put his head down like that for. I mean, you got to know the rules. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the cave on play, I thought, was a little bit more bang bang. And with players being pushed into other players, it's kind of harder not to hit heads. Although, I mean, they did. But I mean, there's, I mean, some of the plays from Manning, some of the plays from Wright, even some of the plays from Sewell getting kind of caught out of position, especially like, like we have talked about before on more extended plays. So I think getting another freshman out there when this team's probably what is it like 70% underclassmen or something like that to have a freshman signal caller out there, I think would only add to the team's issues overall, where I think when you have a leader in the huddle like Anthony Brown with that experience who can kind of calm things down. Maybe, you know, this game he wasn't able to do it, but I just don't see... I mean, if Ty Thompson was out there with a bunch of seniors on the line and senior receivers and, you know, 
if he had CJ and all of that, I could see it a little bit more, but I just don't want to get another underclassman on the field at this point. It's not a rebuild year. Yeah, no, I think I think all your points are 100% valid. So, Zach, you tell him why he's wrong. Well, I'm not going to tell him he's wrong because I actually do agree with a lot of his, his <laughs> points. But, I mean, let me be clear in saying that I think that they should at least consider Ty Thompson. I think that's that's our baseline. for. They need to ask themselves the question this week, do we go with Ty Thompson? Do we go with Anthony Brown? Us as fans and media members, we can't answer that because we simply haven't seen what Ty Thompson can do for more than, than a half. You know, and that's that's a fault of the offense because we haven't built enough leads to actually give these underclassmen yeah, times. Good, but good point. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal a point or an example from two four seven sports, Eric Scopel. You treat this offense, you look at it like a science experiment. You have your control, you have your variables. The science experiment is not working right now. I mean we're we're four and one, it's fine for an average team it's working, but it's not working right now. So you take your variable it could be Anthony Brown. It could be Ty Thompson. We'll see if it works. If they put Ty Thompson out for Cal and he plays terrible, then I could see you going back to AB. But we don't know until we try it. And maybe, I mean, this is the it's a tough time because we can't see practice or anything. We haven't seen Ty Thompson. Maybe the coaches do know. I mean, maybe they know that he's not even close to ready. But until we see it as fans, we don't know. And, I mean, it, it could make all the difference. Think about uh, several years ago when Dakota Prukop was the quarterback and uh, what five games through the season they pulled him because he had not that great of stats he wasn't playing well they brought in Justin Herbert so uh, that ended up going well but of course that was a different situation because the the season was pretty much over and it was clear we weren't making a Rose Bowl we weren't winning the Pac-12 so they had the opportunity to like make that massive change and say hey what do we have here in this true freshman I don't think they have that opportunity this time because there's still a lot riding on the season. We can still make a Rose Bowl on an off chance. We can still make the college football playoff if things go right. But I don't know. It's it's going to be a, a big decision to make, but I just really want them to ask themselves that question this week. Being somebody who's actually at some of these games and you get the awesome, you know, up top camera view, do you see receivers getting open? Do you see them getting separation and him just missing him? Yep. It's uh, The receivers are there. Unfortunately, Anthony Brown has just been a little bit inaccurate on these deep passes. I've been looking for this stat over the past two weeks. I can't find it anywhere. Do you know what his longest air yard completion is this year? I don't. I want to say it's less than 25 yards. Have you seen him complete yeah, a pass that's longer than 20 yards down the field? Everything is 10 yards. He's missed yards, a couple of deep chances. 15 yards yeah, at most. Yeah, he's missed a couple of deep chances. Even in that Stanford game, he had uh, Pittman open on the, the right sideline. And if Pittman doesn't get held yeah. and stumble, Brown, I think, actually threw a good ball. But it just it looked long because Pittman got grabbed and stumbled. He had one to Devin Williams, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I, I like his deep ball. That, that's something that I actually really like his deep ball. It's the, the middle point inaccuracy that is kind of driving me crazy. And that's... Um, Matt Prem, I think, put out a, a tweet saying, you know, this is um, Oregon's worst completion percentage since like 2003 yep. or something like that. And that was kind of the final nail in the coffin for me to come out and say, seeing it on tape, looking at some of these stats, there are guys, there are plays to be made. And Anthony Brown doesn't seem to be making those plays. Now, again, a lot of variables in this game. He doesn't have his starting center. He doesn't have his play caller. He's on the road. So there's a lot of different things kind of playing into this. So I could see, like Zach was saying, and like you were even entering there, Shane, that you know we need to give Brown a little bit more time with all those, with the control group staying the same without changing some of those other variables. 
I'm just, I'm, I'm finally, I'm I'm hundred percent on board. I'm hundred percent on the Ty Thompson train. I think it's time. I think it's time to infuse a little excitement into this team, bring something in um, during this week. That'll get everybody going, especially if it's going to sound like Verdell is going to be out as long as he is. Uh, we didn't talk. Well, you kind of mentioned at the top two, but Bennett Williams breaking his fibula in a, he, Cristobal said it was a fluke accident. He said freak accident, you, yeah. So Yeah, how do you break your fibula? So, off? I mean, was he jumping in celebration or something? Did he pull a grammatical? Tyson Alger uh, reported today. He had the report on the fibula break. It, it sounds like in walkthrough on Friday before they left for for, Pratt, for Stanford, they were in an onside kicking drill, and Bennett was decelerating down the field and broke his fibula. So that sounds like a very freak injury, which is exactly what Cristobal said. What the hell is Bennett Williams doing out there on onside kicking drills like two days before a game day? I guess that's yeah, whatever. Um, but I mean, hindsight's it, always twenty twenty <laughs> in that regard. That just seems fucking crazy. But with this being the <laughs> the first loss, I think I saw it was the first loss in the Cristobal era when the team had over two hundred yards rushing. So I mean, mm. obviously the rushing game has been able to make up for some of the you know downfalls in the passing game, and with that. How much of the blame for this loss do you put on the side of the ball? We haven't really talked about much on the defensive side. I think the defense played pretty well. We could have tackled better, and I think they did tackle better there in the second half. There were there's that one big missed coverage, you know, that allowed Stanford to kind of break off a big play there. But other than that, did you guys really see any situations where the defense made massive mistakes? I think they were slow in the first half, and they gave up a lot of runs, you know, in that first and second quarter. They got pushed off the ball a little bit. But after the halftime, I think they were they were stellar. I mean, you look at the drive chart for the third quarter, and Stanford, I think, punted four or five times, and a lot of those were on three and outs too. So I think that they really stood up after the half, and Cristobal said they sort of just playing harder. That's simply, like, I asked him what adjustments they made at halftime. He said, you know, we came out and just played harder. And so sometimes that's it. They've got the talent to be good. Sometimes they just have to, to get into the game. And I think that it took a little bit of time for them to do that this week. But, um, yeah, you look at That's a problem. It though. is a problem. That's a problem. Exactly. If you're a coach saying your adjustment is to play harder, that's a problem. Like I mean, this is there's, there's some flaws on this team, and they came up to bite them this week. I mean, this isn't the first time that we've seen them play better in the second half than the first half. I'd say that's almost consistent throughout every game in the season, with the one exception maybe being the Ohio State game, which really seems like an outlier on the season overall at this point. It's just going back to the maturity thing. We're like, you know, having these guys ready to go early in these games when it seems like the linebacking core and everything like that defensive side is going to be like, our strongest point and should be able to stop the run. And I mean, they did, they marched down the field a couple times in that first half. They def- definitely cleaned it up in the second half, but it's a, it's an interesting problem to have for sure. No, that's a tough one. So we are, we're running up against a little bit of a time limit here today, guys. So I do want to push us forward because oh. I want to talk about some of these specific plays. And then I want to have time to get into three questions with Zach here at the end, but I don't know if we're going to be able to, so we might have to do another. Yeah, exactly. I like where your head's at there, Zach. So, Second and 18, there's 2.17 left on the clock. Our line looks absolutely gassed. Oregon runs that fake jet sweep action, and then they come back and they try to throw a backside screen, and that ball gets knocked down, and I think that is one of the biggest plays, if not the biggest play, of the game right there. That's an example of our, our coaching staff getting a little too cute trying to call a screenplay in that action. They used that same jet action that they scored a touchdown on earlier. And then they call just a straight, they, they needed to like flip those plays. 
you know, like on second down, let's just run it up the gut. Let's see what we get. And if we don't get anything, if we really want to try to pick up that first down, maybe try to call the screen or something like that. They're on that next situation. But that looked pretty, pretty bad. Zach, tell me tell me what you thought about that play. I mean, it, it goes back to the decision-making from Anthony Brown for me. So say what you want about the play call. I disagree with the play call. Yes, you should flip those that run and screen. If, you're, if you don't get much on the run on second down, maybe try and screen. But as the quarterback, Anthony Brown knows the last thing you can have there is an incompletion that stops the clock. You're just handing Stanford another timeout. And so when he sees that there's no one really open, I think he needs to just kind of fall on the ground, take the sack, whatever, just don't stop the clock. So the fact that he just kind of threw it in the dirt, it was almost like he was throwing the ball away. That's just, that's a monumental mistake, and it goes back to decision-making to me. So in the first place, I don't think they should have ever called that play. I, I agree with that. That's that's not on AB, but it is on him to execute the play. And when it's not there, I think you just have to fall down on the ground and not, not make the incompletion. That was exactly what I came up with, too, is you just got to fall down. I mean, our, our O-line got completely beat. Stanford almost looked like they knew that play was coming, but uh, it almost looked like uh, Stanford had that play called in their huddle. You know, they, they knew exactly what was happening there. So another big one. Okay, now second and 10, 30 seconds left. The ball's on about the three-yard line. And the Ducks once again – no, excuse me, this is before that. This is before the play up there. So – the Ducks shift. They're on about the 15, I think, here is when this play has happens. The Ducks shift that defensive line they've been doing all game. Uh, the right guard for Stanford clearly jumps, clearly jumps, to, has a false start. The whole defense for the Ducks stop and point. The back judge pulls the flag. You can see the video. He has a flag in his hand, doesn't throw it. Huge completion. Stanford gets the ball up to the three-yard line. I understand is, you know, Shane, I want you to kind of speak on this. Obviously, refs are people, too. But how do you pull the flag there? And I mean, I know you you, and you do basketball and not football, so it's a little bit different. But it's a similar situation when you see a guy going up for like an and one. It was almost as if he was waiting to see the outcome of the play before he threw the flag. The number one rule of refing is stick to your fucking guns. Even if you know you're getting it wrong, you have to go 100% committed to the call just to avoid this exact situation. Because we all saw it. He, he definitely goes for it. And it's like the... It's something that I kind of struggled with earlier when, when I was refing, just like a couple times. I'd put my hand up to call the foul and then not blow the whistle, like the anticipation move. And it's the the number one thing you cannot do. So, I mean, I, I thought I thought that was kind of botched. I thought the PI later was kind of botched. Yeah, we'll get to that. That's coming up next. So now we have uh, we're on the three-yard line. It's second and goal with 12 seconds left. And Stanford throws a fade route to the right side of the end zone. Really, really good coverage by Wright. Both players are battling the whole time. It's going back and forth. Even Gilmore and the other commentator make comments about how they've been allowing the teams to play physically all game long. And ball falls incomplete. No call made. Just a good play. Um, On fourth and goal, Stanford basically runs the exact same play. The exact same hand fighting goes on there in the corner. The only thing that was different is after that second down play, you can hear on the broadcast a Stanford coach screaming at the officials for to call holding. You can hear it on the broadcast. And on that fourth down play, that's the call they made. They didn't even call pass interference. They call holding on right. So that's, I mean, as a coach, part of me wants to go, you know, well done screaming or whatever and getting that call. But you you can't throw that flag after you've been letting them play all game long. 
there's there's just no no two plays back to the false start and the uncalled false start and that pass interference or that holding. There's no two plays that better encapsulate the the debacle that is the Pac-12 officials, in my opinion. I mean, we've known it's a problem for the past decade or so that they're not one of the best in the in the nation and just it those two plays you have video evidence of the mistakes they made and it's just it's it's indefensible and like i never want to be the, the person or i don't want to be the podcast that's gonna like oh, we lost the game because they did this or they did that or whatever but it just sucks when it's at the end like that and i mean to have the game come down to those plays and Completely you know it, it yeah go ahead shane by all accounts i mean oregon played bad but it was a good game i mean if you were just like you know a kansas state fan or whatever tuned into this it was a pretty you know entertaining game and for it to come down to that like that's one of those mm-hmm. situations that you never want as an observer to like to have the game kind of decided that way. I mean, not that it was, you mm-hmm. know, decided that way in the whole grand scheme of things, but just in that instance. It... I agree. I think Oregon lost the game when they didn't score at the end of the first half. Mm-hmm. And I think Oregon lost the game when they had to kick a field goal at the end of the third quarter instead of punching it in for a touchdown. If you really want to, you know, I'm all about 100% accountability and all that, and I think those were the those are the situations that Oregon had control over that they could have really you know won the game there. So um, we are running up on a on a time limit here, so we're gonna do uh, three questions in another segment. But just kind of wrapping up this Stanford game, guys. Let's kind of just get some final thoughts. So uh, Shane, hit me with some final thoughts. I mean, I think going into this game, I was a little concerned on whether this Oregon team was a playoff team, like a, a true contender. I thought they might be able to sneak in on the back end, but I think this kind of proves what we thought going into this season that this team's probably a year or two away um i mean i'd really like to see you know the the evolution of noah sewell and you know potentially getting a a healthy justin flow back on the field defensively and that kind of stuff but it's this is one of those seasons where i mean this is college football though you're gonna take a lot of bumps during the season you're gonna lose some guys it's just the way that it always kind of goes and i think that it's it just proves that you know that they're the potential is there. It's all there. And I think the Ohio State win kind of elevated a lot of ex- uh, people's expectations to just like a step above where the team is at, especially for, like we said, with, you know, majority underclassmen. I agree. Zach, final thoughts for the Stanford game. As hard as it is, I think you just have to wash this one. I mean, the the players are going to wash it. They're going to put it out of the men- out of their memories, learn what you need to do from watching the tape. But as fans, we've been in this spot before. We know this pain. It's it's not new to us. But the season's still alive. I mean, we can still make it to the Pac-12 championship, make it to the Rose Bowl, get our third straight Pac-12 title. But what matters is what we do over this next 10 days and how we come out against Cal and make sure that we're firing on all cylinders. It's going to be tough with injuries, but... Uh, it's it's going to be important going forward. So just kind of learn what you can from this one and just yeah. move on. I agree. It's it's the Jalen Hurts method. You know, don't look back at it. Just flush it. You know what I mean? And just, just let it go. Uh, I think if you would have told a lot of Duck fans going into this Cal game that we'd be 4-1, and one, I think they would have taken it. You know, I think they would probably would have thought the loss was in Columbus, but I think they would have taken it. So that is all we have for you guys here on the Stanford game. Make sure to stick around after the break. We're going to come back and do America's favorite segment, three questions. Uh, Zach's going to stick around for that. So we will be right back after this quick break. I mean, you is know, there a worse mascot in sports? Ooh, I mean, ooh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Uh, is there a worse? I really don't think there is. The yeah. Cardinal is the worst mascot in And sports. then their mascot is a tree, which I don't know. But well, yeah, I guess that's the thing. Is it mascot or is it name? It's like right. the worst team Why name. Yeah. What's a Cardinal? 
That was District 5. Now we're the Ducks. Yeah. And the Ducks yeah. are undefeated. All right! Yeah. All right, thanks for sticking around after the break. We are, of course, now ready for America's new favorite segment, Three Questions, where we are three people here on the podcast asking each other three questions about sports, life, whatever the hell we really want to talk about in this segment. So, Zach, you are our guest, so we are going to have you go first. What is your first question, my friend? All right, I'm excited for this uh, this uh, game again. It's one of my favorite parts of the podcast, and pretty much why I came back home and talk about Stanford all we want, but this is really, this is the meat of the, the podcast. I dig it. Yep, I dig it. All right, first question for you guys. If you could replace any starting QB in the NFL with a healthy Marcus Mariota and give him a shot, where do you think that he would have the most success? Dude, you're good at this game. I'm going to go first because this is where I wanted him to land before New England. Uh-huh. Yeah, wow. that's I I, I I know that Belichick was really high on him um, coming into the league. I think he would have allowed uh, Belichick to run some of that like wing formation stuff that he likes to do. Could have gotten really creative with Marcus back there, but I was really hopeful that he was going to go there instead of going to L or going to the Raiders. So that that's where I'd love to see him get a chance. Obviously, Mac Jones is playing really well. That was a fun game last night. But that that's the that's the landing spot. I think that the a coaching staff could get the most out of Marcus. What do you think, Shane? So it's just, it's any, any team in the NFL. Then I'm going to go with a pretty ironic answer. I'm going to have him going back to the Tennessee Titans this time in different circumstances. Interesting. Okay. Better receiving core, better coach. Uh, I mean, Derek Henry there is definitely like, you know, still ascending as far as the top running back in the NFL. I mean, what he did yesterday, with, I mean, without Julio and AJ Brown, 33 totes for like 157. Fucking hell, man. But yeah, I, I actually think back in that system, they could kind of, uh, I think Mike Frabel could carve out some ways for him to run the ball a little bit more efficiently. And then having those receivers, just those big fucking ball catchers out there that would kind of mask a little bit of the inaccuracy issues that he's had. I mean, it's easy to throw a jump ball to Julio Jones and like 90% of the people in the NFL, especially the guys he had there in Tennessee. And so his you want to you run it back with exotic smash mouth. I dig it. I dig it. All right, Zach, what's mm-hmm. your answer to that question? I think I'd have to say the Arizona Cardinals just for their personnel Ooh. aspects. And I, I watched Kyler Murray play. I don't know that Marcus is as good as Kyler is, but Kyler Murray. Kind, of, a, kind of similar skill set. I mean, Kyler's really he's so elusive in the backfield and can get, get out of things, but Marcus is this running-type quarterback who's got a pretty good arm, too. I think that he could really do well in that, that offensive scheme. Kyler, Kyler plays quarterback like a cartoon. Mm-hmm. Like really his does. legs, his legs look like they're moving so much faster than they should be moving. It's just he it's, was I, hissing me off. I hate the NFC West right now. I, yeah. yeah, I hate the NFC West right now. It's in, you had an even worse day yesterday than I did. All right, Zach, hit us with your second question. All right, this one's fun. Your life depends on one of these two things happening. Which one do you choose? Alejandro Maldonado making a forty-yard field goal. 
or Ben Roethlisberger completing a 35-yard pass tomorrow. I'm never putting money on Big Ben in any way, shape, or form. Give me Maldonado. I, 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 I think it was, uh, it was, I, I believe it was Warren Sharp that said this. Ben Roethlisberger looks like how we think, how we thought Tom Brady was supposed to look. He just looks broken fucking down, man. And like, I mean, honestly, like exactly. any other quarterback in the NFL for is started for Pittsburgh, and they cut a solid chance to beat the Packers yesterday. Packers were trying to give that one away. I'm surprised none of us said Pittsburgh for Marcus. Yeah, it's actually, actually. pretty good. Well, their O line is fucking horrible, and that would have kind of doubled down on the issues he already had. That's true. What's your answer to that one, Zach? I'm just I'm writing my will and saying goodbye to family. <laughs> Neither of those things are happening. So. Uh, That's a great answer. That's, yeah. All right. It is with your third question. All right, Zach. last one. This one's non-sports related, but what is your Mount Rushmore of TV shows? Top four TV shows of all time. Oh, I'll go first here. Um, it, it's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is probably my favorite TV show ever. Uh, I'm going to put Atlanta up there too. I, as far as only three seasons, I probably watched it like nine or 10 times. I love that answer. Uh, we, we talked about this on the last episode that I think a show that's only gone two seasons that I think is already an all time great Ted Lasso. And then last but not least my old, like my, probably my all time favorite show, probably the show I probably watched the most overall cheers. Oh, good callback with the cheers. Mm -hmm. I like that. So I forget. Is it four yep. people on Rushmore? Yeah, it's four. <laughs> All right. So Aren't yeah, I got to come up with four answers here. <laughs> yeah, I'm supposed to be. Yeah, I play one on TV. Um, the, the first answer for me is obvious. If you know anything about me, my favorite TV show ever is Avatar: The Last Airbender. And yes, I'm almost forty, and I love cartoons. Deal with it. Um, you can actually see some Avatar stuff on the wall behind. Oh you. yeah, yeah, the little painting. <laughs> up here. I got all my Funkos, my lightsaber up here. Yeah, just it's. I'm a huge nerd. Whatever. I embrace it. Uh, second show for me would be The Wire. Ooh, good answer. Um, the third and fourth is tough for me because I don't I don't watch a lot of TV anymore. I watch a lot more movies and things of that nature. Uh, just because of the impact it's had on me um, over the past couple weeks of picking it up and watching it, it's fresh in my mind. I'm going to copy Shane. I'm going to say Ted Lasso. That show has completely blown my mind since I've picked up and watched it over the last couple weeks. The fourth one's really tough for me. Uh Boy, oh boy. I mean, it, it ended horribly, but I'm going to say it. Oh. I'm going to say Game of Thrones. No, I'm going to say Game of Thrones. I, I took a really long time to get into it, and then when I did start watching it, it completely consumed me. We can all talk about the final season and, and what is what it is, but, yeah, I think that would probably be my Rushmore. All right, what do you got for us, Zach? What's your four? Yeah, I agree with you on Game of Thrones. I mean, you take that last season, it's it's a little bit hard to defend, but you take the seven seasons in front of that, and it's that's my number one choice. I think it's probably one of my favorite shows of mm. all time. If Never not, gotten into it. So that's one for me. Uh, two for me is Succession on HBO. I don't know if either of you watched that, but I've that's one that I've, I've seen it. There's only two seasons. The third season to come out, I think it starts next week, but... I've, I think I've seen it through nine, ten times already. It's just one of my favorite shows ever. Uh, I'm going with JD here. I say The Wire is number three. That's just a... I, I actually didn't start... I didn't watch The Wire for the first time until, I think, last year. That was my pandemic oh, wow. show. And it, I'm just... Mm -hmm. I'm watching it for the second time already, and it's so good. And I'm then, actually, like, in season four right now. Oh, it's, it's oh, nice. so good. Yeah. Your first ever I watch? My, mm -hmm. I think that's my favorite season. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... I dig it. And then my last uh, show is 
the first season only of True Detective. I don't know if you guys have seen uh, that, but I think that one season is as good as any show that's ever been made. The other season's not season, so great because it's different story Season lines. three was pretty good. Three was good. Two was, two was horrible. About two, yeah. but Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, just that first season, just uncomparable. The, the very last episode of True Detective in the first season kind of threw me for a loop, though. That was not how I saw it ending. Yeah, that was a little I think, uh I think my runner-ups would be like Last Kingdom. I really love Last Kingdom, the whole Uhtred thing, Netflix, just a good, you know, battle show to throw up there and all that. Um, and then, like, the first two seasons of Heroes. Ooh, yeah. That, that show, I mean, when you started talking about just, like, seasons from, from Soj and stuff like that, so, yeah. First season of Lost, my... too. That's what I was about to say. First oh, season of Lost is fucking awesome. I've never first seen it. episode before. of Lost, it might be the best episode of any show ever. Yeah. Best pilot ever. Yeah. Interesting. That's a whole other question. The last three seasons, question. it gets to be like, Dude. What, what am I doing while I watch this? But the first like, <laughs> two, three seasons of yeah. Lost. That's the same as Heroes. It's, it sounds like almost the same arc as Heroes. Save the cheerleader, save the world. All right, Shane, your three questions, bud. This first one was the topic that got brought up at the bar yesterday. That uh, At first, I was I thought it was a... Re- I thought it was a ridiculous question at first, Ooh, and then the more we the kind of talk about it, it was like, like oh, okay. It. So uh, this is kind of a bummer question, though. With the Mariners missing out on the playoffs yet again, now the streak is 21 years. Are the Mariners the worst franchise currently in sports? Detroit Lions. No. Pittsburgh Pirates. <laughs> yeah. Shout out, Eli. <laughs> yeah, but I yeah guess- shout out, Eli. We'll have, How long has it been for this? It's been like 50 pod. years for them, right? They won the championship in 57. I don't think they've been to the I playoffs think... uh, in this century. I You might want to do research on that, but I know that. So Eli yeah. is in my fantasy football league, and his name is 57 Lions because that's all, that's the last time he was happy and he wasn't around 57 Lions, yep. I was going to say, I don't think he's that old. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's a that's a good question though. I mean, I think there's a couple other Yeah. The, the Mariners are at least making a good faith effort to win. I feel like and at least put a good product out there. There's there's a lot of other franchises across the board that I, I don't think are doing that. And there hasn't been I mean, there's been some issues, but not like the systemic issues. Like I would even put the Washington football team up there with Daniel Snyder still running that program. Oh, that like, one hurts me. There's just some Yeah, I I bet it does. But no, there's just some uh yeah, at least at least yeah. there's a benevolent message behind the Mariners, I guess, is what I would say. But a good question. They've been close too. I mean, they're at least fighting for a playoff spot, and it, it's that heartbreak. But that almost, it almost makes it worse it does. in some does, ways. Yeah. Like, I mean, this year especially was extra stingy. It seemed like when Boston lost two out of three to Baltimore, I was like, "Holy shit, it's actually going to happen!" And then it all just. Faded well, away. they still, I mean, the Mariners still went, what, 10 and 2 down the stretch? So, you know, to finish a season like that and put yourself in a position. So, yeah, I I, I like the question. I like the spirit of the question, but no, I'm going to protect my marriage. <laughs> All right. Question number two uh, NBA season is like, like 15 days away. We got preseason games on right now. Picks, NBA finals, East and West. Who do you got? I know. Ooh. Hot seat time. You want the conference finals? Or the, the let's finals just go finals, finals. Finals. Clean it up. Let's just go finals, finals. Zach, you go oh, first. Man. Give me more time to think. You know what? I'm gonna throw a dark horse <laughs> in there for my West team. I really okay. think the Dallas Mavericks Ooh. are gonna do it this year. Interesting. I can't you wait and, to see uh, Luca again this year. He he looks underweight, not underweight, but in shape. Not fat is year. what you're saying. Not look at that one last year. I think he's gonna put. Looks the, like he actually. Yeah, I want to say Mavericks, Mavericks Nets. 
and I think the Nets are. I think Zach Lowe's on the Mavericks train too. Zach Lowe's kind of pumping up the Mavs. That's exactly. Got it. Okay, so you're you're going you're going Mavs Nets. Man, that's really really tough. I think yeah, I'm gonna go Nets in the Eastern Conference. I think it's just it's so hard to to pick anybody else right now there in that conference. The West just feels like a massive uh, clusterfuck. Just who mm-hmm. knows? Just so many balls, yeah, up there in the air. I know one team. I'm not going to say. Everybody knows. I'm not going to say the the purple and gold do it, team. Judy, do it. I'm gonna go. No, I'm gonna go. I think the Suns make it back. I think DeAndre Ayton continues to get better. I think they they manage CP3's minutes better this year, and so he actually is healthy and fresh going into the playoffs and hopefully doesn't break down. I think D-Book could make that next ascension to becoming a true superstar in the league. I hate it because living down there, Phoenix Suns fans are awful. Suns um, in four. That whole, that's, a, that's a franchise. I mean, just, you know, Sarver. Yeah, the Sarver ownership. And, I mean, he doesn't deserve a championship. Sarver doesn't deserve any good things for his ownership of that team. But I think that, yeah, I'm going to go Suns next. I, yeah, I mean, I'd say the team at the East, I could see making a run. Out. I could see Boston kind of leveling up and surprising some people. I like Brad Stevens in the front office. But I'm also going to go with Brooklyn. They're just top to bottom the best roster in basketball. Uh, Western side, I'm going to take a team from Los so Angeles, hard. but they don't yeah. wear purple and gold. I think the Clippers are going to coast along. I think PG is going to have a nice, good year. You They're going to come Clippers. in at about the four or five seed. Around that time, Kawhi is going to be healthy. They're not going to have to play a top-tier team right away. I think that they're going to make a deep run. Defensively, they're going to be really good. I'm I'm just going to have that Will Smith meme ready to send to you where he's wearing the Clippers hat and he's crying. I'm just going to have – I've got that ready to send to you over and over and over again this season, Shane. All right, Shane, hit us with your third All question. right. Uh, I'm just going to do a little bit of teasing for our episode coming up later in the week. We're going to be interviewing our Ooh, one of my yes. good friends, music producer, Sam Shrox Troxel, and uh, he just had – a single on an album that drops today. I sent that over to you, Justin, earlier today. With that being said, what is your go-to road trip album? Complete album, can't pick greatest hits. I've got this one. is another one where I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, you go ahead, Zach. You're more of a, a hip hop head and music head than I I'm am. I'm actually so go not ahead. even going straight hip hop here. I'm going to go with the Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. It's a cool, good answer. Just throwback album, such good vibes, relaxing, calm, a little bit of reggae. Yeah, I think that's a, mm-hmm. a fun one to throw on, and there's really, really no skips on there. Absolutely not. I can't yeah. remember and, the last And time. it's a decently long album, right. too. Yeah. Correct. I can't remember the last time I sat down and listened to an album. Like I just, Ooh, really? Like, I'm, I'm I'm a podcast guy. Like, and I just, I true. listen to podcasts all the time. I mean, I, when I was younger, I used to listen to a lot of it, but. That's a really good question. That's a tough one for me. Uh, I'm going to give the old man answer, and it's it's the album that I probably listen to. Well, no, not. Man, that's really, really tough. I'll throw mine in there yeah, real go quick. Ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so when I had my last car, I found out that it had a, a six-disc changer in it, but I couldn't get any discs out once I put them in. So I had to be very selective <laughs> on what discs I put in there. And then from that, I definitely listened to some more than others. Uh, <laughs> Kids will never know the struggle, man. Kids will never know the and struggle. And so I'd probably go with like top three answers. Number one, Mad Villainry from uh, Mad Lib and MF Doom. Number two would be Sign of the Times from Prince. And number three is an album that just turned, I believe, 30 the other day and was The Low End Theory uh, by a Tribe Called Quest. Oh. 
That's a great answer. Those would be my top three, and those were three of the the CDs in said. Whoever has that car now, I hope they're enjoying those albums. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with an album that had a really profound effect on me when it first came out, and that I haven't listened to in a long time. But it's one that I can always put on. I'm gonna go with Modest Yahoo Youth. Ooh, uh, that's I haven't even third of her thought of Modest Yahoo in like a yeah, decade. No, I think you're you're on the same page as everybody else in the world there with that one. But yeah, that's <laughs> definitely probably the last album that I was really like would sit down. That or uh, even the next album he came out with after that, like well, I think it was Light. But it just takes me back to like my barista days, you know, working in the working at Global Delights or working at Dutch Bros. And you just throw on an album and just kind of let it play all the way through. So that's probably probably the album that I would listen to. All right. Shane, excellent questions, my friend. And yeah, way to tease uh, our second episode that's going to be coming out this week. So. All right. So for my three questions, I'm, I'm actually the more like on brand one here for the podcast this week. <laughs> I feel weird like being the one that's actually kind of I've got one that's a little bit out in the weeds, but um pack 12 question here pack 12 football question what team has surprised you the most so far for better or for worse corvallis the beeves uh i mean having another strong outing this weekend uh and actually like really pissing off the UW fans more than i don't know if you guys have seen husky twitter this week but like this shit is like really on fire now. And I'm like, dude, you guys lost to Montana. You realize that but, like now the sky is falling because you lost to like a pretty good Oregon state team, like <laughs> whatever. But I mean, that whole, that Husky Twitter is a delusions of Granger era area anyway. So yeah, I'd go with the beats for sure. I like it. What do you got, Zach? I think that's definitely the, the right answer. But since I don't want to double up on the answer, I have to say mm. USC. I really thought they were just going to be a lot better this year. Um, I know coaching change and QB controversy aside, but uh, I just I had hopes that we would see them in the Pac-12 championship was going to be fun because we didn't get them in the regular season, but that's definitely not happening now. So I think that they're they're definitely been a surprise how bad they. I'm are with you year. there. I think yeah, Slovis and that whole offense just kind of disintegrating in front of our eyes. Uh, I'm going to give a very, I mean, Aunt Shane probably knows my answer to this. It's Utah. Mm. I thought Utah was going to be like a top 10, top 15 team this year. And they've fallen off the face of the earth. It's like a flat earth and they've fallen off the edge of it. So uh, that's that's the team that's really underachieved for me and really been a massive, massive surprise. So, all right, next one. This is this is a little bit more, I mean, I think we may even had this question before, but I think it's a, it's a good time to, to ask it just because of my personal feelings. Right now, what team in the Pac-12 for football do you think is Oregon's biggest rival for you? Like for you specifically, who is Oregon's biggest rival? And I'll, I'll go ahead and go first because this is kind of a complicated one, but I've already got my answer thought up. For me, it's the Stanford Cardinal. I hate the Stanford Cardinal. Going back to that game in 2001, what's a Cardinal? I got to dig back in and find that audio file and pull that out here for the podcast today. It's the worst mascot in all of sports, worst nickname in all of sports. They, I, I do not like that school. I do not like it. Anytime we play them, I just, I hate it. I hate it. So they're probably the team that I sports hate the most in the Pac-12. So for me, they're Oregon's biggest rival. What do you guys got? Did you happen to see Nick Pickett's tweet did you see that, Justin? About, no, I didn't. About, like, he's like, why is there, why is there a mascot a tree when it's like a cardinal? And then people had to like, go and like explain to him like everything. And it was like, how did yep. you not pick this up the entire time? But actually, I'm going to... It's Pickett, man. <laughs> I'm going to agree with you there. Uh, 
they have definitely been the one that like has taken the wind out of my sails the most, especially the time that I was in college, the Toby Gearhart era. And just the way it wasn't how Stanford beat us. And it wasn't even necessarily like the timing of it, especially when like, you know, Oregon had a lot more to lose in Stanford and a lot of those matchups, but it was more like the way they did it. And we kind of got into this the last time that we had Zach on the podcast when I was saying that like, you know, even if we had lost to Ohio state, it wasn't like that same kind of drubbing that we'd felt through the years. Stanford is why I feel that way. Mm-hmm. I like it. What do you got, Zach? Yeah, I think Stanford is the right answer there. We wrote a piece uh, going up to leading up to the game last week. That What's a cardinal? Why they are our biggest oh. rival? I mean, you look at all of the. I think this loss to them last week and last weekend was <clears throat> the fifth time in the past twenty years we lost to them when we were a top ranked team, a top ten ranked team. It's like that, and we've done the same thing to them too. When they're ranked, they're close to getting to the playoff or getting to a, a BCS bowl or something like that. We've beaten them too, so I think that's the right answer. But if there's a team that I care the most about beating this year, if I can change that to be the question, I'd say it's the Beavers. I like that, especially after last year, <clears throat> especially after what they've done this year. I mean, they're they're a good team, and it's, that's going to be a massive game. It's not going to be easy. We finally have them at home. So I think that's that's not really our biggest rivalry because they're they haven't been that good. But if they stay this level of, of production and they can stay this good and hover around the top twenty five, that's it's gonna be a good rivalry going forward. I think that's a really important distinction. For me, a rivalry where both teams need to be competing for, for big time consequences and there's there's a lot on the line and i think that's why yeah stanford got it for me and, and also shout out to a uh, winsipedia.com if you ever want to like get a breakdown of like matchups specifically and stuff like that it, it's a really really cool website so i've been exploring that a little that bit website. today and uh bouncing around <laughs> so yeah, shout out winsipedia for kind of helping me answer that question what's a cardinal yeah, what's a cardinal get the hell out of here Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask my two questions just because we've uh, got time boy. and whatnot. So I'm gonna give you my first one, and then I've got one more for you guys. So, in the spirit of my Marvel nerddom, Marvel has a cartoon out right now called What If, and it's a really cool kind of cartoon going into the different what ifs of Oregon history and comic book history. So I'm gonna ask you, what is the biggest what if moment in Oregon sports history? For me, and this is a, kind of a personal question, I'll just answer it because I like to answer these, give you guys questions. You got to think on it a little bit. I'm going to say Johnny Manziel still comes to Oregon after Marcus commits. What happens? Right? Because I think that completely changed. I mean, they're going to be in competition. Uh, he comes in with all this like oil family money and the, the big recruiting stars and stuff like that. Obviously the coaching staff loved Marcus and wanted to bring him into Grimman to be the starter almost right away. But I think that's a moment in Oregon football history that could really change a lot of things. So that, that's my, that's a good answer too. Especially I was very impressionable in that, in that era. And I feel like that could have changed the course of my life pretty easy. (laughs) Going from rooting for Marcus to Johnny. Yeah. I I might be a different Uh, person now. Um, The term men of of Oregon. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. My goodness. Absolutely. I think for me, it would be, what if Darren Thomas doesn't leave early? What if he comes back for that Ooh. extra year and what that team could have looked like? Because that's still one of the biggest, like, head-scratching moments for me. I mean, we talked about that on the like, episode, like, 25 or something, about, like, kind of why it was he left. He was 
you know, a franchising candidate, but like no real NFL scout was saying like, you know, we're going after this like five foot 10 guy, but I mean, he's, he's fucking skilled. And I mean, that, that era there and that Chip Kelly era, I mean, that is about as exciting as football had been at that time. And he was pretty tailor-made for that system. So it was, it was interesting to see him leave. So I really want to see what would have happened that next season. And if I remember correctly, it was kind of a like a Kenny Wooten situation when he left. There were there were things happening off the mm-hmm. field on campus that weren't gonna. I mean, we go back and find that <laughs> Kenny Wooten conversation. That's a fun one. Kung Fu but Kenny. There were there were some things going on in his personal life, I think, on campus that he didn't want to come back to. If I remember correctly. Sorry, right, Zach, hit us with your what if. I think it's what if Dennis Dixon never got against Arizona. That was my number two. Yeah, absolutely. He he was one of the top Heisman candidates. We seemingly had a nice path into the BCS championship, and then it all fell apart. And, uh, yeah, that's a tough, tough finish of the year to think about. But I think that that was was probably one of my biggest heartbreaks as an Oregon fan. Like, I don't know if you remember the picture of him in the register guard where it's a close-up of his face. He's just, like, crying on the bench and... I think if I were to go back and change one thing in Oregon history, it's keeping him healthy and just seeing what would have happened the rest of that year. Because that changes the narrative for a lot of Oregon football. They could have gotten the job done that year. And probably playing like West Virginia in that exactly. national title that year. So, I mean, yeah, that would have, that's a that's a great answer, and that was my runner-up. So you have something you want to follow up there, Shane? What, wasn't he playing with an injury that led to him tearing his ACL? Wasn't, is my memory serving me correct? So he partially tore it the week before the Arizona game and it was really hush hush. Nobody wanted to say anything and you Uh can't play on a partially torn ACL. You can't do it. He went out there, tried to play on it in Arizona and then completely tore it is uh, if I remember that all correctly. So, all right. Our bonus question this week that I want to throw at you guys. If you could play for any fictional coach, who would it be? Any sport, any sport, so obviously Ted Lasso is the, the kind of the in the can answer here because everybody's loving that show right now. Uh, I'm going to go a little bit into one of my favorite uh, basketball movies ever. I'm going to say my man Jackie Moon for the uh, Flint Tropics. I think that'd be a really fun team to play on, throwing those alley-oops and whatnot. And just hopefully I don't get traded for washing a, a dishwasher yeah. or something like that. God, I yeah, wish you were still a washing machine. Hopefully I'm not on bear duty or anything of that nature. But, uh, yeah, I think it'd be fun to go play uh, for One of my all-time movie. favorite movies, too. I'm going to go with another one of my all-time favorite movies, Above the Rim, and I'm going to play for Coach Tupac. For, uh, do I need oh, to explain that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think that's a pretty much a self-explanatory answer right there. I like it. I like it. I like it. I have to say, I'm going to go play for Coach Carter. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's an absolute stand-up coach. I don't know if I'd want to go to Richmond. Fair or too well in that environment, but Rich what? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I think that he's a, a great basketball mind, stand-up coach, and a good leader of men. He'd probably get a lot more out of you than Coach and Moon coach would. That's Tupac, for sure. You have to work a lot harder. I just. Yeah, I don't know if I've got the heart to go play for Coach Carter down there. I think he would have destroyed uh, fat Justin when he was a freshman in high school. (laughs) I don't think I would have stood much of a chance. All right. Well, gentlemen, that is, of course, the end of our three-question segment. We want to give a big thanks to uh, Zach Neal for jumping on, being our second-ever guest in his repeat performance. Make sure to go find him on Twitter at Zachary C. Neal and go check out all of his wonderful writing because his fingers do work on DucksWire.USAToday.com. Thank you for coming, Zach. 
So again, if you're still listening, once and all, thank you so much. We appreciate you. We love you. We out. Peace. I gave my love a cherry that had no stone. I gave my love a chicken that had no bones. I give... Sorry.